All right, welcome back to the Rumcast, everyone. Uh, I am Will Hookinga, one of your hosts here. On the other line, I have your other host, John Gullah. John, how's it going? Have you made it all the way through? I know you have been sending me text messages about a little care package you received recently containing what looked to be a sizable number of rum samples. How is yes. that going? Woo, have you worked well, your way through them yet? I, so I have. And, and let me say, first of all, I'm feeling very good today. Um, uh, fortunately, we dodged another bullet uh, with uh, Hurricane Isaias. And so uh, I'm happy and I'm going to enjoy exactly doing that, which is using that care package that was very, very nice, a kind gesture from Meredith and Jeff Olszewski. They are big rum connoisseurs themselves. And I'm certain that if you hang around Facebook groups or do anything related to Privateer, you will definitely know them. They are Privateer super fans. And just generally awesome people so uh yeah first and I will if, say, if you've yeah. if you've seen their posts on social media before you've also probably seen the like amazing rum shelves they have in the house that they post pictures of. it's yes. just like this amazing rum collection it's like i don't know six or seven shelves high uh yeah. of just almost every rum brand you can think of so yeah definitely. well they're awesome and yeah it, meredith was really really kind in asking me hey what are some of the things you would be looking to try that you haven't been able to and and sent me a few of those samples and so i've been kind of slowly working my way through them uh give it's me been some a, highlights yeah so uh one would be uh the worthy park 2007 habitation valley release okay oh man is that something that is special uh yeah. really really love that one uh she also sent uh, uh plenty potenciario four square mm-hmm. uh release okay. that is excellent so a definitely. lot of the Velier stuff a little yeah. harder to come by depending on where you are in the u.s so definitely yeah, that, that's great yeah. Yep. So those were I, really good. All of them were actually really good. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually now that you mentioned the the Worthy Park release, I am uh, sipping on the Worthy Park uh, estate release. Nice. Um, right now, I'm, I'm curious. I know you've the had twelve year. Not well. Hold no, on. not the no, twelve. Not the twelve year. The other Got one. Got it. Uh, which I don't think has an age statement on the bottle. Right. Um, what are the biggest differences to you between some of those estate bottlings versus the Velier one? So I, I will first say this. I haven't had the estate yet. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, okay. Um, I've been looking to get it down here and I actually contacted Zan when we we had him on and was like, hey, I've been looking for this. And he said, yeah, COVID's still making it difficult to get stuff. He said, definitely you can order it online and which I plan to do. And I think there's uh, down here, uh, Sarasota Liquor Locker, maybe yeah. one of the best places in Florida to get that. So uh, shout out to Brock there and making sure he can get me that, I believe, soon. So Well, maybe um, what we should do is just a sample exchange of our own. Of our own. And I can send you some of this uh, estate bottling and you can, well, I guess <laughs> you probably don't have enough leftover of your sample to send that I one I do. Along. I was going to say, so one of the things that when, when Meredith and I were talking was uh, she said, hey, pay it forward. And I plan to do that more than once. But wow. one of the things I wanted to do was make sure I saved a little bit of a few of these for you, Will. Aww. And then also the Queen's share. She sent us her favorite barrel pick of the Queen's share. Oh, nice. And, okay. And so I definitely want to get that to you as well. So Yeah. And I've got uh, the, a few of the recent distiller drawer uh, re- releases of my own that I could send awesome. your way. So maybe we need to do a whole little sample exchange uh, episode at some point. Uh, that yes. might be fun. Yes. Um, the, the only thing I'm not going to send you, Will, is the Karen-y. <laughs> 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 I do know that you had a pretty adverse reaction to that. Uh, uh, I'm sure there are fans. your first time trying it. And yeah. I, I, you know, I... I I see passionate reactions one way or the other with Karen-y bottling. So give, give yeah. us your give us your first impression. 
Well, I, I will say it's not my favorite, as as that was made evident. But okay. um, th- there's this really like I don't know medicinal uh, kind of note that that reminds me of rubber bands or mm-hmm. band aids, mm-hmm. and I j- it's it's overpowering for me, okay. and I just can't get through that. It it feels to me like the underlying distillate is good, so I can see why there are fans. But this particular release, which is the the Karen two thousand, is just it it is overwhelmed by that for me. Have you had that, Will? Or I have not. No, okay. I haven't experienced it yet. So yeah, it's um, certainly unique. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I've also heard that there's a, a, a pretty high degree of variance between releases. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people who love some of them and um, will pass on others. So, yeah, um, yeah. Well, there you go. So tell me, what what have you been up to uh, lately, Will? What's what's going on in the rum world up there? So I recently broke one of my cardinal rum rules, Uh-oh. which is I always try to, when I'm getting near to the end of any bottle... I try to not completely finish it in the hopes <laughs> of being able to do some type of interesting comparison. Okay. Um, so, you know, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be like comparing the, the, the exact same, you know, right. bottle to, to the same bottle. It might be I like, see, if I I'm see. getting low on a Jamaican, I might mm-hmm. wait until I buy like, you know, something from another Jamaican distillery or like a, a release from the same distillery from a different year, just to be able yeah. to like compare them a little bit. Cause yeah, I yeah, find yeah. that experience very instructive as opposed to just trying something on its own. Right. And, uh, what happened was I got to the end of a bottle of Probitas, which is the um, collaboration between Probitas. Foursquare yes. and Hampton. It is, as the bottle says, a unique white blended rum, I think mm-hmm. is, I believe, is the, the, the copy on the label. So right. basically... Very it's, lightly it's, aged, right? Yeah. Very lightly. Yeah. I, I think I think the I think the Foursquare distillate is lightly aged, and I think right. the Hampton distillate is unaged. Right. Um, I believe you're correct, yes. It has this really nice hue of like, like a light hay color Mm -hmm. um it's really it's really nice but yeah great rum uh i think pretty universally adored in the rum world that's my daiquiri rum (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. same here and i was replacing it because i was running through some daiquiris this weekend it's been pretty okay so um i went out and got a new bottle and i you know i don't usually compare the same bottle like you know, I, I'm not going right. to sit there and like when my Appleton 12 runs out, I'm not going to save some to compare it to another bottle of Appleton 12. But mm-hmm. I wish I had done this with the Probitas because my memory of the previous bottle I had was that the Hampton influence to my palate was like, it was definitely there, mm-hmm. but it was not nearly as strong to me as this new bottle that I've picked really? up. Um, and it's it's so different to me that I'm almost wondering if the blend is slightly different or something i don't know if anyone else has wow. experienced this i'd love for you to send us an email host at rumcast.com yeah. and let me know uh, and i'm certainly i'm not bringing this up as a criticism at all because the this bottle is is wonderful as well in its own way and it might yeah. just be you know sometimes you taste something and it just it, it can be exactly the same but just tastes different to you for whatever reason so this could mm-hmm. be that case but uh, man, the the Hampton in this bottle just really pops um, yeah. to a degree huh. that I didn't notice previously. So um, yeah, and this is why I should never violate my my rule. So <laughs> well, if this were a Facebook conversation, we would be adding Richard Seal right now, and I'm sure he would have something to <laughs> Actually, say about it. That would it. probably be the, the quickest way to get an answer. Would <laughs> yep. just post something on Facebook. Maybe I would do that if I um, didn't. Yeah, uh, you know, I hate using <laughs> Facebook for anything. But um, anyway, you know that actually comes say? up. That actually comes up on the this this interview today oh, that right. we have with Ed Hamilton. Yes. So uh, yeah, so we talk about a lot of stuff. This is one of the longer interviews we've done, and we're at, we're just going to publish the whole thing because you know I really like 
you know, long podcast interviews, just an episode that I can really sit back and relax and go all in with. So to me, this is one of those episodes. uh, Facebook comes up because uh, John posed a question, you know, just about the Ministry of Rum Facebook group. Uh, Obviously, I think most people listening to this podcast know that Ed Hamilton started the original Ministry of Rum website, which is a forum, which is still live, Um, you know, just a tremendous centralized location that, uh, you know, everyone who enjoys rum has probably encountered at some point in their rum journey. Uh, The Facebook group is kind of like an offshoot of that. So Ed had some interesting thoughts on that and just Mm -hmm. kind of the overall like things he hopes to be able to eventually do with the website. Um, that, That was really just one aspect of the interview we also really dug into his whole progression as being a an importer of rum starting his own brand you know first he started off just importing uh, a few rums from martinique uh, nissan rums were the, were the first ones they did in la favorite as well and then uh, over time launched the hamilton brand of rums which if you're in the united states and you're into rum you're likely familiar with uh, great, really, really to me, like invaluable rums to have in the marketplace. Oh, because yeah. Ed's really big on transparency, so you can really count on knowing what's in the bottle. He's done, he has Jamaican rums out there, you know, sourced from Worthy Park. He has Demerara rums sourced from uh, DDL, which, you know, that source is kind of obvious because it's like the only distillery <laughs> left in, in Guyana. But um, he's, he's done a, a ton of super interesting stuff. He's also just an interesting person, uh, you know, personality in the rum world. So this was, you know, someone whose name was on our list for a while and it was really fun to do the interview uh before we dig into it anything stand out to you any anything you want to throw out there reflections or anything like that um i i think he's just such a, a laid-back and relaxed and knowledgeable guy that the information just kind of just flows through i imagine myself like also on a sailboat like in the caribbean listening to this long-form podcast <laughs> of us talking to him because it, it does feel like that to me it feels like a really laid-back really fun conversation uh except for that one point where he promised to choke us both out if we were in front of him <laughs> oh yeah we won't we won't say why but that does happen um, um yeah and and like cool I, I don't i don't want you know to be in that situation because ed is like six five <laughs> he's a and, big dude you know that he's I got he's, he's got quite it. a bit of reach on me yeah um i'm not that tall so i probably yeah. couldn't get away so uh yeah i i'm i'm looking forward to everyone hearing this and yeah uh we'll kick it over to the interview now all right all right so we are here with ed hamilton uh known uh, to many as the minister of rum the founder of Hamilton Rum, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. Um, I'm actually enjoying some. I don't usually make cocktails for these interviews, Ed, but I couldn't resist. I had to make a 151 swizzle uh, with Hamilton 151, of course, because I usually when I recommend cocktails to people, I don't like specify you have to make it with this rum. This is one of the rare cocktails where I will say you have to use Hamilton 151 for this rum. It's just perfect for it. So um, I'm really excited to have you joining us on the podcast today. Uh, how, how have things been going for you? How are you doing today? Well, today's been good. Like everybody else, I've been scrambling. Yeah. And uh, I can't believe it's been, what, three and a half, four months we've been into this uh, mm-hmm. coronavirus. But uh, I thought I was going to have more time, and I actually haven't had more time. I've been really busy working on all kinds of things, uh, including getting 375 milliliter bottles of the ham- most of the Hamilton rums uh, bottled for bars in states where they can do cocktails to go. Oh, interesting. Uh, there's a couple of states mm. that say, yeah, you can do cocktails to go, you can do cocktail kits, but you can't 
pass a whole bottle across the bar uh, to somebody in an awaiting car. So um, I had to find a bottle and then get it labeled and uh, get labels made. And it requires new US or UPC codes. And then you have to get the UPC codes correct. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, bottled and all those things. So it's been a, all the interesting stuff. Yeah. It's, it's all the boring <laughs> stuff that you don't think yeah. about. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the part of the deal, as they say. Yeah, I, I know you I typically see, you you know, traveling to, to bars all over the country and stuff like that. So I, I was interested to hear sort of what the past few months have been like for you. I know I've seen you doing a lot of, you know, Zoom uh, meetings, happy hours, things like that. I know John uh, does a lot of stuff with the Florida Rum Society and you you did yeah. uh, a, a Zoom call with them. I actually I don't live in Florida, but they, they made me an honorary member uh, for the sake of that call. So I was able to join in and uh, just. Yeah. For one day, exactly. well, just for that Florida day. citizen. Um, so I enjoyed getting to sit in on that. But what has that been like for you, just in terms of you know doing all these virtual events? And uh, has it seemed like a, a productive way to spend the time? You know, when you're not able to to, to travel and, and visit accounts in person and that sort of thing. Yeah, it has been productive. Um, what I recognized early on, and maybe uh, I'm not a vain guy. But I recognized, I looked at what I enjoy doing in, with these Zoom things. And one of the things that, I, that came across very quickly, and we're used to seeing a lot of Zoom and Skype video on TV now uh, with reporters and such. Yeah. And there were a couple of things I noticed that work. And then there are several things that don't work. <laughs> and I'm not the, the best social media guy, but have a background that is real not your bed that you haven't made. I'm <laughs> surprised when I see a CBS news report and the guy hadn't even made his bed. Uh, also, the right camera angle. Uh, no one wants to look at a fan that's rotating behind a guy's head. Don't have a window behind you, that sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it looks like you've got a fan coming out of the back of your head <laughs> and then it's uh, casting a an oscillating shadow or, you know, like a strobe light strobe shadow across your face or the back of your head and then having a decent picture so get the picture right get the angle somewhat level so people don't mind looking at you Uh, and then a better camera Um, shocked at how many bad cameras there are Uh, that people are doing (laughs) professional things I'm not professional but uh, and having a microphone that people don't mind listening to yeah, uh, we've all listened to things, and we thought, "Oh my God, I don't want to have to spend twenty minutes listening to this." Well, we appreciate it for sure. the The Florida Rum Society event that uh, Will mentioned was really great, and we enjoyed having you there. And you sound awesome now, so that it, I believe it's been worth it. Well, um, I hope so. It's <laughs> yeah. an investment. Uh, yeah, it's I, an investment, and I'm not. Yeah. I'm not traveling. Uh, my expenses have dropped dramatically. Uh, be- yeah. because I'm not traveling, although I've got a lot of Southwest Airline miles. Mm. 
And speaking of traveling, and you mentioned your background already, I know you have a great backstory we've heard you cover before, the one where you were working as an engineer for the company, and you made the little actuators for the airplanes, and uh, there was the whole thing about your boss told you what to do in five years, and you basically wrote down, go sailing, and, and then you quit. Legendary story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so w- one thing that occurred to me is looking at your background, and with that in mind, you have these degrees, I think you have degrees in both mechanical and chemical engineering, and I always wondered... Do you feel that that background has helped you to understand rum on a technical level at all? Uh, And if so, how? Yeah, I kind of got into this through the back door. Um, It became very clear the first visit that I made to a distillery, which was the Crucian Distillery. We were talking and he says, you know, Ed, you're asking a lot of questions. You know, where are you from? What are you doing? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm an engineer. Uh, but I'm researching a book on rum that uh, I'm hoping to publish someday. And he said, oh, okay, well, it's really nice to talk to somebody that understands what this stuff is. So my chemical engineering background gave me a good understanding of distillation. And when I started visiting distilleries, to understand what people were doing and be able to talk to them about it really opened them up that I wasn't just another tourist. And mm-hmm. so we had a something of a you know quick bond there and it helped me understand the process. It also helped me tremendously once I started doing my own rums and that kind of thing. But in 93, when I started doing research uh, in the Caribbean, I did not even ever dream of having my own brand or importing rum. But I started importing in 2005 was my first container. I didn't start doing my own brand till uh, eight years, eight, nine years later. So it's been a long progression. You know, I've been doing this 25 years, more than 25 years now. The first rums that you imported, those would have been the, the Martinique rums. Is that right? Right. I started importing Nissan and La Favorite. Mm-hmm. And then quickly after that, I realized that I needed sugarcane syrup because even though you can get almost everything in America, you can't get real sugarcane syrup like they make in Martinique. So I started importing the uh, sugarcane syrup. And now I'm importing that in liter bottles. For years, it was just uh, 500 milliliter bottles, half liter bottles. And uh, now I'm getting that in liter bottles. But understanding what makes rum good or bad really gave me a leg up when I started evaluating things and trying to understand. And then the blending process, the dilution process, uh, there were a lot of things that having a chemical engineering background really helped me on. I'm interested in, in, you know, you, you had this kind of natural progression where you started with those Martinique rums, and then you said, you know, years later, developing your own brand and kind of stair-stepping your way up, trying all these different things. How is your approach to figuring out what to release? How has that evolved as you've you've grown in the industry? I know you, you've spent a lot of time, you know, talking, listening to what the bar community is looking for. I've heard the stories of how the Jamaica pot still black and gold rums came to be from having those conversations. What are kind of the the factors that you look at now when considering, you know, okay, what am I going to do next? How has that approach evolved over time? It is all driven by demand. But having said that, I was very naive when I started. I did not want to become an importer because that was a lot of work. (laughs) I was living on a 45-foot sailboat in the Caribbean 
life yeah. was pretty good. Uh, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I didn't need a lot of money. And I was visiting rum distilleries. I was selling a few books. Um, life was good. And I wasn't yet 50. Uh, I still had plenty of strength left in me. And, uh, you know, I had a, a boat that I I lost my first boat off Antigua in 2000. And a few years later, uh, or shortly thereafter, I a friend gave me a 45-foot sailboat, and I started sailing it around, and it was a dream come true. A boat that was big enough to haul enough cargo that I could make ends meet going up and down the islands. And one of the challenges on a sailboat is you need all your stuff, but then you also need a way to earn a living. And if your boat's big enough, you can carry other cargo. Uh, I was hauling paintings for other people, note cards, books, sometimes canvas, all kinds of different things. And so to have a boat that was big enough that could support itself and me was wonderful. But I was in Chicago, a guy was drinking tea punches one night, a businessman, and he said, I've got to have this rum on my yacht. And uh, turned out he didn't have a boat yet, but he was going to buy a boat shortly. <laughs> when I do have a yacht, says, it won't be complete until I have this rum. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, he ended up buying a 90-foot yacht, uh, powerboat, and he says, I've got to have this rum. I love this rum, a tea punch, or, you know, I want, I've got to have this. So I'm going to give you the money to start an import company. I said, <laughs> well, okay. So I started and I thought, well, let me see if it'll work. And with that, it started, you know, I started in 2005. I came back to the States. I didn't realize how much work it was to import rum. And I really thought that I could do it part time, <laughs> but I was mistaken grossly underestimated how much time and effort it takes to build a business. I'd never done that before. Well, so especially, you know, when you're you're working with importing alcohol into the United States. <laughs> yeah. It comes with a level of, of red tape, I've heard, you know, that's uh, that's foreign to many types of businesses that you could start. Yeah, it's, it's different. But not only that, you're dealing with the three-tier system, mm. but today we all know rum. And we can go to a liquor store and find at least half a shelf of rum. In 1997, there were seven rums on the shelf in the biggest liquor store in America. Wow. 2004, it wasn't much better. Nobody had ever heard of rum agricole. And French islands, the Caribbean has French islands. <laughs> exactly. Huh? We didn't know that. Uh -huh. uh, so here I was bringing in a product that nobody had ever heard of tasted completely different than anybody had ever tasted. And there was nobody else doing it. Now, Clement started in 2005 as mm -hmm. well. But Ben Jones and I were bringing in a product that nobody had ever heard of. I finally met a guy in San Francisco, Thad Vogler, who had heard of it, hadn't tasted much of it. And he was impressed, started putting it in his bar and slanted a door and things grew from there. But it was incredibly challenging to introduce America to a new segment of the rum industry. Now, how many cachaça brands have you seen come and go? Uh, I mean, I can think of maybe three or four that I typically see in stores, you know, mm -hmm. between Same. Novo Fogo, right. um, starting to see Avoir now, um, and uh, Leblon maybe. Well, even here in Miami, so LeBlanc, in South Florida, you only see a couple. And we've got a yeah. decent-sized Brazilian population here, too. Right. So there's two things there. There's been a lot of them, a lot more come and go. Mm. LeBlanc's owned by Bacardi now. 
Avua, they're building it up, trying to sell it. Novo Fogo has got some pretty good financing, and they're hanging out in the hanging in there in the mm-hmm. market. But there's cachaça that people at least understand a little better than rum agricole. They didn't have any idea what rum agricole right. was. One of my mentors in Chicago had a whole bunch of cachaça in a big liquor store, and he said, "This is one of my best-selling products." I don't know why I really want rum agricole. And so I started importing it. So I started with a product introducing America to a new segment of the rum industry. And many times I thought if this stuff was called Gubria or something else (laughs) and not called rum, I might have a better chance. Because as soon as you call it rum and then let people taste it, they go, this isn't Mm -hmm. rum. And then you start over again. So anyway, I was fortunate, but uh, I also was fortunate to work for Diageo and a number of other companies, helping them do promotions for other molasses and sugarcane-based spirits. And because I had the website Ministry of Rum, at least I had a calling card. Right. And without that, I would have failed in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, It was a big learning curve, learning experience. But then I started, oh, I started from the beginning listening to bartenders and people started asking me for things. And then the Lemonheart brand came along and that got dropped in my lap. Uh, They were looking for a small importer that would give the brand some TLC. They've since changed their mind on that. Uh, and they changed the product considerably and they raised the price and the label and everything mm-hmm. else. But out of that came the Hamilton 151. And with that came the 86. Mm-hmm. I started doing those at the same time. Uh, bartenders were asking for other things. The Jamaican rums were bartenders asking me for. So all of the Hamilton rums, I didn't sit around as I joke sometimes with bartenders. I didn't sit around and get high and go, wow, I got this great idea for a new rum. <laughs> there wasn't like a vision quest involved or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, there was no LSD involved. Dehydration uh, on the sailboat. No. Uh, you know, this is going to be really cool. People are going to love it. I'm going to design a label and I'm going to design a bottle and I'm going to do this. No. Everything that's come out that I've done under the Hamilton label is the direct result of identifying a demand and then identifying every other product that would be competing with that. And except for the most recent white stash, mm-hmm. I can, I would, I was going to say, honestly say, I hate that term. I can say with confidence that there is nothing else like it. And when people ask, who's your competition? I say, I don't really identify any competition. If you're trying to build a business based on being just better than somebody else, you're probably going to fail because the market really doesn't care. If you look around at the biggest rum company in the world, do you think their product is the best rum in the world? No. wouldn't say so. They've got the best marketing team. They've been in the market longer. Right. But how many times do you see a product and somebody says, oh, this is really good? And you go, okay, yeah, it's good. But two, three years down the road, it's gone. You know, it's it's so interesting to me to hear about product development, listening to what the market wants and, and that sort of thing. It, my, my day job, I do freelance copywriting. 
um, which may make a lot of listeners instantly not trust me. <laughs> but, um, I, uh, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing when I get a new client is doing customer interviews, listening to them, trying to get a sense of, you know, why they make the pur- purchasing decisions they do and that sort of thing. And, and one thing I've learned is that what someone tells you they want is one thing, but what they actually will pay for sometimes can be something different. So I'm interested when you have these conversations with the bar community and stuff like that, and, and they're, they're telling you what they need. Do you have like a certain threshold where you hear something enough times and then you think, okay, now I need to look into this or, or what, what does that process look like once someone tells you they want something? How does it go from, you know, maybe this is something I should look into to, okay, I, you know, I'm going to start picking up phones, calling distilleries and that sort of thing. Well, I don't do focus groups. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you ever do um, do focus groups, John and I would like to be a part of that focus group. We're in. Way. Just just throw that available out anytime. <laughs> I'll tell you, I don't do focus groups. Uh, focus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friend of mine in advertising has another word for focus groups. I, yeah, I, I can imagine where it might go. A few times in focus <laughs> right, groups. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I listen to bartenders and then I'm very, very fortunate to have become friends with a few people whose names you probably recognize, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Miller, uh, Jeff Barry, yeah. Martin Kate. When Jeff Barry tells me that he needs something, he was the guy that pushed me over the hill on the uh, white stash, the white rum. Oh, yeah. He says, Ed, I got to have it. Okay, Jeff, I know if you've got to have this and you tell me you want it, you will buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Martin Kate tells me that he needs a good 151 and we know Lemon Heart's going away, I know that I have to come up with a better 151. And in that case, I had a little bit of lead time. I had an inkling that the company that out of Canada that owned the brand was going to get rid of me. And uh, Because you were doing the, the helping with the importing at the time, correct? Right. I was importing Lemon Heart. I imported it for a few years, but they would never sell me their Lemon Heart 80 or their Lemon Heart uh, Spiced Rum. Okay. And I didn't understand that. And uh, we met with the buyer at uh, Benny's in Chicago and the buyer asked, you know, when are we going to get Lemon Heart 80? And the guy just blew up. <laughs> and, you know, we're not here to talk about Lemon Heart 80. I said, well, you're here to sell rum. And, you know, what's the deal? I mean, I I don't get it. But uh, I knew that I needed a, another product and there was a need for a Demerara. The other thing I looked at was there was a trend, and I call it the Zacapa trend mm. or the Zacapa effect. For some reason, a lot of people got this idea that rum was supposed to be sweet. Yeah. And let's call it 2007, 2008 a lot of brands were looking to get sweeter and sweeter. And El Dorado was one. Uh, Angostura was one. Uh, you could name a whole bunch of them. Sure. There were a few that didn't. Forticana is one that didn't. But uh, a lot of the other brands were getting sweeter and sweeter. And bartenders told me, we don't want a sweet rum. We don't need a sweet rum. We sweeten them ourselves, yeah. We can sweeten them up ourselves. And... I knew people wanted something that was natural. And they also wanted transparency. They wanted to know where it came from, as many details as you could give them. And with Martinique rum, it was all very transparent. 
the distillers that I work with, Nissan and La Favorite, are just wonderful in that I can go there, ask any question, get a real answer. I can walk through the facility, take pictures. They don't care. Another thing I do everywhere I go is look at the trash pile. Mm. What's on the trash pile? Or if there's a bunch of cans sitting around or containers, what's in those containers? What are they using? Um, And there's certain things you use acid sometimes to adjust pH before fermentation. Mm -hmm. There's also ways to do it naturally. And uh, are there any accelerants used in fermentation or any other chemicals that are used afterwards? And there's all kinds of things. Part of, again, back to chemical engineering, I understood what different chemicals were used for, which ones were the good ones and which ones were the bad ones. And having my background kind of opened the door to that. And then it took me years of asking questions and observing and that kind of thing. I look for transparency. Bartenders were looking for transparency. They still are Mm -hmm. today. Uh, When I came out with my white rum, bartenders were asking me, Jeff is the one that pushed, as I said, pushed me over the hill on that. Uh, We sat down one day in his bar in New Orleans and he he says, what are you working on? I said, well, you know, I'm kind of worn out. I'm, I've got a few new products that I've come out with and the Navy Strength and uh, the West Indies Blend. I said, what do you need? He says, I need a white rum. I said, really? There's a bunch of white rums. <laughs> he says, well, they're not very good. <laughs> I said, okay. So I started with Jeff and then I went around the country and I asked people, what do you like about your white rum? And the universal answer was nothing. Wow, that, that, I, I'm surprised by that too, yeah. you know, just because it's, it's such a large portion of the market. And I do feel like there are some interesting ones out there. But then again, I'm not a bartender. So, you know, I don't know what all the price points and, and how that factors into everything is. But, but I'm, I'm surprised by that as well. Well, price point is one variable in the equation. Mm-hmm. I asked bartenders... Typically, I'd, you know, I'd go to a bar and then by 10 o'clock or so, there's a slower time after the rush of the 7, 8, 9 o'clock rush. Mm-hmm. But by 10 o'clock, you know, bartenders are slowing down a little bit. And I'd ask people all over the country, what do you like about the white rum you're using? And the answer was nothing. I said, okay, get down from your bar, bring down all those white rums, and let's go through them all. And they knew what I was doing. I was, I'm looking to do a white rum. I said, if I had a white rum, what would you want? Let's start with what you've got. And we went through them. The number one thing was no sugar, mm-hmm. right? No bite in the finish. Okay. Nothing weird in the aroma when you open it. Take a, you know, smell it or you pour it in glass and you smell it. We'd like some rum flavor, but not artificial flavor. Mm, yeah. Nothing candied, preferably aged. But the biggest things that I saw were no sugar and nice in the finish, no bite in the finish. Now, a bartender can cover up some of that with sugar and juices and other things. But if you start out with a good product, you're going to have a much easier time making good, consistent cocktails. But no sugar and rum flavor. Well, it's amazing when you add sugar to rum, you hide a lot of imperfections. Things like a bite in the finish. Uh, like the rum flavor. Mm-hmm. It just masks it. So I'm going through all the rums that were available. 
there were things that we picked out from each one of them. And it was interesting to me that across the country, many, many people picked out the same things from the same rums. Mm. And then came the price. And a couple, a few people said, yeah, this is a little overpriced, but we really like the people that are selling it. Uh, but yeah, the rum isn't really great. And I said, okay, if I could deliver this to your bar for $17 a liter, would that be in the ballpark? The key about $17 a liter is it's just under 50 cents an ounce. Uh, okay. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. That's the, magic, that's the magic word or the magic number. And people said, you know, I'd, I'd go a little more than that. Sometimes we are now. Uh, one of the things that I didn't like about the rum, the white rum market, I said, it's a whore's market. There's always somebody going to come in after me with a cheaper rum. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you expecting that to happen with, with white stash? Oh, sure. But it's okay. Because if you come in with a cheaper rum and that's your business mm-hmm. is cheaper rum, go for it. There's always somebody that will have a cheaper rum. But you probably aren't my customer anyway. Mm, yeah. Right? You're not you're probably not pouring the 151 because you can buy a cheaper 151. You can't buy a better 151, but you can get a cheaper 151. Definitely. I've, I'm having flashbacks to, I don't even know if it's on the market anymore, but I'm having college flashback, flashbacks to Bacardi 151 oh, with that, uh, yeah. with that like protective seal over the, <laughs> over the top of it, you know? Um, right. No, that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. If you Google, Bacardi 51 hair on fire for YouTube. <laughs> Some good results there. Oh, man. I feel like there's an epitaph there somewhere. There's always going to be a cheaper rum or something like that. That's something. <laughs> right, right. There is. There is. But people that are selling better drinks are looking for a better rum. Hmm. And they will pay a fair price. And then the other thing is don't run out. That's key. It's key. It's huge. It's ab- it is the second most important, well, call it second or third most important uh, aspect variable in any product. So you've done market research. You got to have quality product. You got to have the right price and you can't run out. That's the same thing for my house parties. You can't run out. <laughs> right. I don't mean a room. I mean, you can't run out of the house. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you you were starting to source something, you had something really great that people wanted, and then you, you didn't have enough in supply? Like, was that one of the kind of lessons you had to learn along the way, or is it something you've always been prepared for? I wish I knew the date. Uh, I want to say 2013. Mm. I think it was 2013. I started importing my own product. Uh, let's see, it was 2015. Uh, January 2015, I started doing my Hamilton 151. And at the end of that year, I looked and my sales were up 38%. Wow, nice. Which is a pretty sizable increase. And back to my engineering side, I looked at, okay, how did this happen? And I have a lot of reports that I write. Um, I do a lot of PHP coding and uh, do a lot of internet reports for my own company. So I identified that I was growing and I said, how did this happen? It's not because everybody likes me, I know that. (laughs) So what did I do? What were my successes? What were my failures? The number one thing that I could account for was in that whole year, I didn't run out of any product. Mm. I might have run out of something for a week or two, but uh, I didn't run out. 
And I said, from that point on, I am going to do everything I can not to run out. And it took a commitment. You know, it's more money, it's more inventory, but I really pride myself. So when I go to a distributor, I say, okay, I'm going to give you a good product at a fair price and I'm not going to run out. And they look at me in disbelief and say, (laughs) okay. I don't believe you. (laughs) Call my other distributors. And now I've been in the business 15 years. Uh, Most of the distributors know me, know each other, Mm -hmm. even if I switch a distributor like I just did in Georgia. Uh, They already know about me. And uh, when I say I don't run out, they believe me. And I said, you know, I might run out of something for a week or two. I'm getting critical right now on sugarcane syrup. I'm down to 100 cases of liters. So that's 1,200 1,200 liters of sugarcane syrup. But I just got an email today that the 500 milliliter bottles are coming from France. So by the end of next month, I should have 500 milliliter bottles of sugarcane syrup. If that's the only product I run out of that's non-alcoholic or the only product that I run out of this year, I'll be okay. But uh, all of the other Hamilton products, I've got plenty of bulk. I've got plenty of backup. And so I can honestly say to my distributors, feel confident selling this. I'm not going to run out. The first thing that happens when you run out is you piss off the bartender. Then you piss off the sales rep that sold it to the bartender. Mm -hmm. And the product gets replaced with something else. By the time you get it back in stock, the rep doesn't want to represent it anymore because he says, well, I'm going to sell this till the next time you run out. I I guess at every level, people are kind of like making an investment or making decisions based on what's available. The bartender is, you know, running a bar program. The distributor wants to have something they can count on. So, yeah, I I think that's an aspect of it that that consumers probably don't think about very much. Uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, consumers may not think about it that much, but I know when I have a drink that has a different rum in it in terms of the quality of the rum or, or if I'm looking for a specific, like we mentioned, you know, Hamilton 151 goes in that drink. There's quite a few like that that I think yeah. there is some savvy consumers in, uh, out there who will know when that gets changed and not be pleased. I think rum consumers are also like naturally a little skittish to like something suddenly exiting from the market because they've seen right. it happen so many times. Right. So it's probably music to people's ears hearing, you know, how, how prepared you are, Ed, with, yeah. with, uh, with your stocks. That's great. I, That's great I, news. I can't be the first one to say this, but in the Ministry of Rum, these sound a lot like Ed's Rum Commandments. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one, first one would be, uh, there's always going to be a cheaper rum. <laughs> the second one will be do not run out if if you're selling rum. We need to come up with eight more, but we're 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 twenty percent there. Right. Well, don't add sugar. <laughs> don't add sugar. <laughs> there you go. Look uh, look through you... the trash at the distillery. <laughs> Maybe that could be one. Well, I don't know about that. If you do, or look through the trash at your bar. <laughs> Uh, if you do add something, tell people. Yeah. Be transparent. Transparency. So the transparency is something that uh, I worked on from the beginning. And when I first started working with the guy that blends all of the Hamilton rums, I it was my first batch of St. Lucian rums. Mm. And I said, I want to bring these in. I bring it in casts of rum. I want you to dilute it to 93 proof. And he says, Stop how long do we have to do this? I knew that was the right question. Yeah. I said, well, how about a couple of weeks? How's that sound to you? And he says, yeah, we can proceed. <laughs> if you want it done faster than that, we're going to tell you we can't do it. Wow. The, the implication said, okay. being when you do it too fast, it can produce adverse effects in the rum is what I've, what right. I've heard from distillers. 
Right. It, you produce adverse effects. That's saying it polite, <laughs> not that polite. I, it basically sucks. Yeah. I feel like I, I, um, I read recently somewhere it can lead to like a, I heard it described as a soapiness in the in the rum if you if you proof down too quickly. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are many ways to describe flat, it. Flat. I would say flatness. Mm, that makes sense. Um, but I asked, okay, what does your water look like? And we were in upstate New York. Uh, you know, everybody knows Kentucky water, limestone filtered water, yeah. if you believe everybody. <laughs> uh, well, some people get it from the uh, municipal water supply and then condition it. Uh, but this guy's got a deep water well. He's about a mile from Lake Erie. And he showed me an analysis of the water. Almost no iron, no salt, and adequate amounts of calcium carbonate. And I said, okay. This looks nice. Can I publish this? He says, sure. I don't have anything to hide. We shook hands and we've been great friends ever since. And that's been eight years, seven, eight years. Uh, He's just a a jewel to work with. And Mario Maza is his name. The transparency and the lack of obscureness. uh, There's no opaqueness Mm -hmm. in the presentation. Then there's two guys that actually do the work. Mario owns the place. He's a chemical engineer. Then the two guys that work there are just a pleasure to deal with. And I give them my demand, my needs, and then they figure out their bottling schedule. So, for example, they bottle the 151, the Navy Strength, and Jamaican. And I tell them, this is what I need next month. So nobody's rushed no fire drills the end of the week or anything like that. Uh, They have plenty of time to dilute things. But back to the dilution. So you guys in Florida, uh, I know Tennessee's a little tougher, but I know it's available. The 151 and the 86. Yeah. Here's something you can do to prove to yourself the importance of slow dilution. Ooh, cool. This this sounds fun, like an at-home experience. Yes, I'm in. Yeah, I wish we were on video. I could show you that. <laughs> we can arrange that at but... another time. We'll do a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so this is something I do with bartenders all the time. People people ask, okay, you know, we hear it's important. Really, Ed, it's important? I go, yeah, it's important. And I'm going to show you how to prove it to yourself. Take half an ounce of 151. Okay. And then a little bit less than half an ounce of water. And then in another glass pour some 86 proofs, half an ounce or so. And if you use three similar size glasses, preferably small, Mm -hmm. um, I don't use the fancy scotch smelling glasses because I want something with a bigger opening at the top so the rum can really breathe. So if you dilute 151 directly in half, you will go from 75.5% alcohol down to 37.75% alcohol. Okay directly in half. To go to 43% alcohol, 86 proof, you want a little bit less than half dilution. So you got your half an ounce of 151, a little bit less than half an ounce of water, smell the 151, and then dump that water in there, swirl it just slightly, Mm -hmm. and then smell it. When you smell it, you will get more alcohol on the nose. And it may be counterintuitive because you just added water to it. There's less alcohol. Yeah. There's less alcohol in the liquid, but what you've done is force much of the lighter aldehydes, which account for flowery florals and that kind of thing, light aromas, 
Those are forced out of solution by the heavy water connecting with the heavier uh, esters. And the heavier esters are the things that give rum uh, the smoky oak flavors, the uh, heavy fruit, uh, roasted fruit or cooked mm-hmm. fruit flavors, yeah. the heavier fruit flavors, as opposed to the light florals. So these light florals end up being volatized because they're out of solution. And the bigger molecules have attracted the water. The lighter molecules can't attract the water. And they're just bullied out of the way. They're out of solution. They come off the top. You smell them as alcohol. Wow. Then you taste it, and it'll taste flat. It'll taste like dull copper. And then you taste the 86 proof, and it'll taste fresh and bright like polished copper. I, I just poured my last ounce and a half or so of Hamilton 86 this weekend, but I'm going to go back. So I, I know you said it can be tricky in Nashville. I have two stores that I can rely on. Is These are my Hamilton places. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to get a fresh bottle of 86. And John and I will we'll do we'll do a little video for Instagram or something like yeah. that. We'll, we'll, we'll run through the experiment and uh, and give give people the, the real time reaction. Yeah, I've done this with literally hundreds of bartenders, and it's something that's really simple to do, and it's very demonstrative of the effects of adding water quickly. Now, I just use, typically I'll use purified drinking water, you know, out of a Mm. bottle. I prefer stuff that doesn't have a lot of additives, Mm. and some drinking water, they tell you that they've added additives, some they don't. So the truest Um, experiment would use like an RO, reverse osmosis type of water. You can buy that at the store. Yeah, yeah, I'm using Nestle right now. It works. I get it at Costco. And just as a follow-up question to that, when you mentioned so it breaks the solution and and uh, that happens, will it reintegrate at some point, or it will stay that way in the glass for how, however long you leave that rum and water mixed? Well, if you leave the rum and water, uh, you'll lose a little bit more of the light alcohols. They'll volatize, and it'll just taste flat. Okay. It tastes like a cocktail that's been sitting around too long. Mm. Got it. So it's Not irreversible, great. essentially. <laughs> it's irreversible. Wow. Yeah, I didn't going to go back. So in order to not lose those light alcohols that are volatized when you add water, what we do is put a tank of water, and we do this over five days. Mm-hmm. So just for clarity or simplicity, yeah. let's call it simplicity. Let's say we're going for half. Uh, I get the 151, what becomes the 154. I get that product in at about 150, the 151. I get in at 154 proof, just a little bit higher proof. So we're going to dilute it to a little less than half proof. Yeah. But for simplicity, let's say we start out with 2,000 liters of, of rum. We're going to add 1,000 liters to mm-hmm. it. We're going to do it over five days, so we're going to add 200 liters a day for round mm-hmm. numbers. What we actually do is add a little bit less than that 200 liters the first day, maybe 160, 70 liters. The last day, we'll add 220 liters, 225 liters. The first day, it's going to make the biggest shock, biggest difference in reducing this. Mm. And towards the end, we're not reducing the alcohol content as much. So what we do is we put a tank of water, roughly 200 liters or less, depending on which day it is. We put that on a forklift, raise it up in the air, have a hose come out of that, and we have a clamp on the hose. We clamp it down so it's just dripping slowly. And then we put connect that to a stainless steel tube that goes to the bottom of the tank that we're going to add the water to. Wow. Mm. 
The tank is covered, so it's just got a small hole in it. We put the tube in the bottom of it. And then also in that tank, off the bottom of it, there's a valve. And we have a exit from there, goes to a little two or three GPM gallons per minute pump, a circulating pump. It's a magnet drive pump because it's highly flammable alcohol. And then we just take the exit from that pump back into the top of the tank, into the side. We're not splashing it, spraying it in there. We're just up to the top of the tank. So we're circulating it. And it actually makes, uh, you can see the circulation in the tank. But when we add the water, it's going to the bottom of the tank. So by the time that water floats up through the uh, alcohol, it is absorbed by a lot of different alcohols, different esters, and we give that all the light alcohols the opportunity to connect with some of that water. And because we keep it covered, we're trying to minimize the amount of light alcohols that we're losing. And when you taste the 86, I'm sure you've tasted them side by side. The 151 is a lot heavier. Mm -hmm. The 86 is lighter, brighter. Well, that's part of the reason. Now, when we dilute or when we add uh, the Jamaican rum, for example, we put the high proof rum into the lower proof rum. The Jamaican comes in at about 180 proof. Mm-hmm. We put that into the lower proof uh, Demerara rum, and that takes a day. And then we dilute that mixture down to 114 for the Navy Strength or 86 for the uh, West Indies plant. How long did it take you to arrive at this process? Because it's it's much more involved than I think the average consumer would have guessed, you know, in terms of just proofing down the, the different rums that go into these blends. Well, I listened to other distillers mm. and... Mario knew. So the easy part for me was Mario already knew it had to come down slowly. And we talked about, well, we're not going to just drip water in the top. (laughs) And he said, yeah, we've got this circulating pump. I said, great. Uh, Well, let's run the water in the bottom. And he says, well, yeah, we don't really want to. We tried that. We had water going into the circulating pump. And then we changed it to a stainless tube going to the bottom. So it's been a little bit of experimentation. But we just built on what we knew were best practices. That's so cool. And then we looked at, does it work better if you go eight days? And we didn't see a discernible difference. Diminishing returns. As opposed to five days. But the factors are, what proof are you starting at? What proof are you going Mm -hmm. to? Now, obviously, if you're going to a lower proof, it's going to take longer. Or if you're starting at a higher proof, it's going to take longer. But working with people that understand what you're trying to achieve and what the variables are, and then have a good palate that can taste things. When we do the pimento dram, for example, so there's a product that is going to be dependent upon the freshness of the pimento, of the allspice, Mm -hmm. and how fast that... Uh, those spices are absorbed by the high-proof alcohol is going to be a function of temperature, and it's a linear function of temperature. Well, it's not going to be the same temperature all year round. We prefer to do it in the fall or winter, preferably winter, early spring. Uh, If you try to do it in the summer with a lot of sugar that goes into that, you're going to have fruit flies. Mm. Uh, I didn't even think about that. We try to do it, right? Do it when it's cold, but then that's going to affect the um, maturation time. So we do it separately early or during the winter time when it's cold mm-hmm. and then or during the summer when it, when that 
part of the process goes faster. And then we put it aside, add the sugar later, dilute it down, add the sugar later, and bottle it when it's cold, when we don't have a fruit fly problem. Because even in a big uh, warehouse with screens and air curtains and all that kind of stuff. We'll find a way in. Yeah, yeah. They, the other thing they do there is because different batches are going to be slightly different. They'll make, say, 2,000 liters of that. They'll bottle 1,000, 1,200 liters of it. The rest of that stays in a tank. Ah. And then we add that to the next batch of 2,000, mm. and then we bottle it's almost, so, it's not the same, but it, it's like, a, Solera. it reminds me of like Solera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing that I yeah. thought of. That's fascinating. So if you guys were in front of me, I would reach out with both of my long arms <laughs> and attempt to grab you by the throat and bang your head. <laughs> For comparing it to Solera. <laughs> this is not Solera. There is no Solera in the rum industry. Uh, don't don't tell me about Solera. Will said it more than no, I did. I'm just saying, choke him out first. That, maybe maybe there's a Solera related commandment in the in the Ed's Ten Commandments. Yeah, there maybe. is no Solera. Thou shalt not yeah, say Solera. Shalt not yeah. say the word Solera. It's a typical process where you're doing batches, batch processes, and you're trying to have a consistent product. So, for example, the Nissan rum, they it's a, well, they make it in batches, but they make it in a column still. Yeah. But during the six month of production, the rum campaign, they call it in French, uh, things are going to change a little bit. Fermentation is going to vary. It's a three to four day fermentation. Mm-hmm. So things are going to change slightly. So they take many different batches, put them together in big tanks, and then they save some of this year's production to blend in with next year's production so that you keep a, you minimize the differences between the batches. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing, you know, with, with agricole, I'm guessing you get variations year to year in the cane itself, you know, just depending on weather and, and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Small variations. But uh, I've been, I have a decent palate and I've been drinking Nissan for many years. I do not really notice uh, much difference mm. from batch to batch. Now, occasionally I'll get a batch and I'll say, wow, this is really good or maybe a little better. I do, I get more of a difference in the Elevé Soubois. Uh, that one, Gregory says, yeah, put some of this batch aside. Uh, maybe they bottled more or they left it in the, ba- in the vat longer or there was some other change. They can't bottle every product the day it's ready, you know, by the calendar. Yeah. Uh, They taste it. And then they say, okay, this is ready. But it might be another two or three weeks before they can get around to bottling it because of schedules or production or whatever other things are going on. So I do see a little bit of variance or more variance in the Elevé Soubois. La Favorite, I see a bigger variance in their Amber Rum. But, you know, it's a smaller operation Mm -hmm. and... Uh, there's a lot of challenges with aging products. So on the note of the, some of those Nissan rums, you know, we talked about making rums that the market wants. I, I can't recall which interview or podcast it was. I went back and, and read and listened to a lot of Ed Hamilton stuff preparing for this. And one of the things I heard you talk about was the idea of aspirational products. Um, and, and you cited some of like the longer aged Nissan rums as examples. The idea being these are products you love, but are, are maybe more difficult to sell. Why are those kinds of products important to you? And, and are there any rums that you aspire to bring to the market but haven't gotten to quite yet? 
Oh, yeah, I got a bunch of them. <laughs> um, well, part of the problem is they're expensive. Hmm. So I bottled the St. Lucian in 2015, uh, January 2015. We're in July of 2020. So I've had some of those rums five years in my warehouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm down to the nine-year-old. So there's got, still some that aren't in stores yet. Right, but not much. Yeah. Uh, I did a container. So it's probably 30, 37, 38. I think it was 38 uh, barrels, as I recall. So that would have been 760. It was almost exactly 20, well, it was 20 cases to the barrel. Okay. So 760 cases. It's taken me five years to sell, over five years to sell them. I'll sell out in the next few months. It's a funny thing about these. As they start selling out, as you get closer to being out, sales yeah. increase. Right, because scarcity Even mindset. With COVID. Yeah. Right, they're you know they're going out. Uh, the five year old went out first. I didn't have a lot of that. Then the seven, the ten years sold out. But just before the ten years sold out, I got a couple of cases of that, and I'll probably get a few cases of the nine year old. But the aspirational products. One of the example, I I, I got a. Uh, hamburger one time and i there's a jack something jack hamburger jack um, in the box i remember seeing it on the television and seeing this thing and thinking wow this big bun and all the bacon and the cheese and the burger man this looks fantastic and i stopped on the way to san francisco and i got one and i looked at it and i thought you dumbass where's what happened <laughs> <laughs> Things may look different. Actual models may vary. Yeah. You know, when you when you look at a sports car, there's a new sports uh, uh, Porsche Speedster out now. Limited edition, 1948 of them. Uh, the original Speedster came out in 1948. Uh, they're selling like hotcakes. It starts at $275,000. If you want air conditioning, it's more. <laughs> oh, you want a top too? Well, that, the hard top's more. Uh, everything's yeah. optional on it. You want four I wheels? Don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want? Yeah, you want? And you want these spiffy wheels? Yeah. Oh, because we got regular, regular, you know, mag wheels. Right. Uh, I'm sure they're not even mag anymore. They're some kind of alloy. <laughs> but there's always that's the product they advertise. But when you go in to buy one, I mean. None of us mortals can afford a $300,000 car or $350,000 car by the time you see it the way it was tested by Road & Track magazine. But we settled for something a little less. Yeah. And we are happy with it, you know, like the 86 proof. It's a good serviceable rum and it's under $25 yeah. mm-hmm. or about $25. I could come out with a rum that would be $35, but I wouldn't sell much of it. And it would be a much bigger investment for me, and it just isn't, it doesn't fit into the business model of having good products at a good price that I can't run out of, that I won't run out of. For example, that I buy typically 20,000 liter tanks of rum. Well, when you start dealing with an aged rum, uh, you're typically buying barrels. Mm -hmm. You're not buying 20,000 liters of an aged rum at a time. So it's all part of the business decisions. and uh, But back to the Nissan rums, there is one uh, that I'm looking at now that I will bring in some. It's a beautiful rum. It's about 12 years old, and it was aged in French oak. Uh, it comes in a beautiful bottle, beautiful box. And I've always said, 
I don't collect bottles. I don't want them in a beautiful box. <laughs> but there is a market for that, yeah. and there are people that want it. Sure. And I'll sell a few of them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have to have them. You know, the people want something special. And for that, you know, I'll have a little bit of it. But the bread and butter of the business is uh, in Nissan. It's the Nissan Blanc or the Nissan. I sell quite a bit of the Nissan 52.5, but the Nissan Blanc is the best selling product. So, Ed, uh, switching gears a little bit, we've talked a lot about rum through the lens of business. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit, how has your enjoyment of rum shifted as it's evolved more and more from something that you just kind of enjoy as you sailed around the Caribbean to something that you then saw as a business? And are you able to just enjoy rum for rum or are you always going to see it as a business side of it and you can't separate from that? No, I look for enjoyment first and then the business side of it. I tried when I'm drinking rum, I'm trying not to think about the business side of it. Uh, I just want to enjoy it for, for what it is. Having said that, though, I'm very critical. I'm not going to spend my time drinking something I don't enjoy. Are, are there and, certain aspects you found yourself becoming more critical of as you've gotten deeper into the business? Like, has that changed at all how you sort of evaluate, you know, what you see as good? Yeah, I think, well, my palate's become more refined. Yeah. And I'm less tolerant of additives. When I first started doing the research back in 93, uh, before then I was just hanging out on a sailboat, drinking rum and doing what people do in the islands. In 93, I started collecting the rums from the distilleries and visiting all the distilleries. And I I just realized this a few months ago. Of all the rums I tasted, I never tasted anything that had any sugar in Mm. it. Nobody added sugar. More recently, people have started adding all kinds of flavors. After 2001, uh, there were all kinds of things that came in with flavors. I did in about 97, I ran across Santa Teresa 1796, Mm -hmm. and they sweetened that with a little bit of honey, Mm. and it was delightful. It was wonderful. The Diplomatico Reserve Exclusiva Mm -hmm. Had a little bit of the coca, uh, like Coca-Cola extract, cocoa. Coca leaf. Um, well, not coca leaf, not the cocaine. <laughs> this, this isn't cocaine, John. <laughs> um, but they, they added some flavoring to it, and they added much less than they do now. I think now there's more more to that. Mm. Uh, nobody was adding vanilla. Now, Santa Teresa also had an orange liqueur that was absolutely delightful, and it was sweetened with cane sugar and real oranges. Okay. And uh, it was unbelievable. I try not to turn my nose up at all these things that I see today that have got all kinds of flavors added to them, but I can't help myself. (laughs) I mean, if I taste something that tastes like burnt plastic in the finish, I don't want to drink it anymore. Yeah. And I tell the distillers, you know, what are you doing? And they, well, you know, well, uh, yeah, okay, I'm not the critic. You guys go do what you want to do, and I'll go do my thing. And, and that's probably the hardest thing is not just telling people, this is really sucks. Mm, yeah. But there's a market for it. Now I'm seeing things like, uh, you might have run across this one, Kirk and Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's everywhere. I see it. I see that as a lot of times people who are new to rum come onto forums or whatever and, and post, you know, that that is kind of like one of their their, their first investments in the rum world mm-hmm. is, is Kirk and Sweeney. I see that one all the time. 
Right. And then if you follow them on blogs and stuff, six months later, they'll move on to something else. Yeah. Uh, Zaya used to be a big, big mm-hmm. one that uh, on the Ministry of Rum forums back when I was more active and keeping it up. Um, people used that as an introductory rum. And so there's something to be said for introducing people to rum with these things, but they're not great. And many of them have gone over the line of 21 grams per liter right. or, or 21 grams a bottle. I'd have to check. Uh, but anyway, it's the, it's two and a half percent sugar. You're allowed to add the threshold. Or, well, they, they call it grass generally regarded as safe and it can be flavorings, sugar, caramel, things like that, that are generally regarded as safe. But many people, including Kirk and Swinney, go over. Kirk and Swinney also is changing their age, age statements because they weren't in compliance with uh, TTB regulations. Changing like the phrasing on the bottle and that sort of thing. Right. The 15-year-old, for example, I didn't ever have anybody that asked me to taste it that didn't tell me. We know this isn't 15 years old, but what do you think? Yeah. There was recently an article in Forbes, and uh, the writer admitted that uh, it wasn't, you know, they had a different way of calculating ages. <laughs> and uh, I got in touch with the consultant, the lawyer, actually, that did their uh, COLA. And then they confirmed that they were going to be changing their age statements. Mm-hmm. It's owned by some rich guys out of Napa Valley. They bought a bought the brand from somebody else and uh, wanted to get in the rum business. There's a bit of that. Going going back to those St. Lucia rums, I, I feel like those have achieved sort of a cult following status in the rum enthusiast world. I see people all the time, you know, posting pictures of finding them. And, um, you know, people say, you know, if you find bottles of that, get them while they're still available because it's, it's for, for what you're paying, it's such a great quality of rum. There was another interview where you mentioned that you bottled four of the barrels at cask strength and you had one rep who ended up, you know, selling them out really quickly, I think in two weeks or something like that. I, I wanted to ask, have there been other times you've been surprised in terms of the way the market has reacted to something new that you've introduced? Yes, but let me go back to that. So the first batch of St. Lucian rums, I did them all at 93 proof, but I took four barrels and bottled it at cast strength. And uh, it was Jeff in San Francisco saw the samples come in by FedEx, saw them in the mm-hmm. office, distributor office and grabbed them, took them out and sold them <laughs> out in a week and said, told people these aren't going to be available. Uh, he sold almost 80 cases wow. of rum in a week in the Oakland, San Francisco area. Since the most recent batch, it has a new label. Uh, the old label, people told me, a couple of people told me they looked counterfeit, the, the old labels. Uh, are almost counterfeit. The newer label has a batch number right on the front of it that you can read. And uh, those are all cast strength. So I did two different batches. As far as selling out fast, I I was amazed at the interest in the black rum. I knew that there was an interest, but I didn't know how big it was. And uh, that, that surprised me a little bit. And then the gold rum... This is the ja- the Jamaica the uh, Jamaica gold, this, right? Right, the Jamaican gold. So I wasn't even planning on doing a gold rum. 
And the first bartender I took a pre-production sample to out in San Francisco or in uh, Seattle, a bartender made a a daiquiri with it and said, Ed, I absolutely love this. I love everything about it. But served in a daiquiri in our little champagne coupe, it looks like somebody shit in the glass. (laughs) He says, bring this to me in a gold rum and I'll put it on the menu. I said, okay. So I got lucky on that one because um, now I have two products instead of one. And there are many instances where a bar will buy the gold, they won't buy the black. But in the tiki world, black works just fine because you're putting it into typically a ceramic mug and you can't see what it looks like. So there was an example. The black sold better than I thought it was going to. The white I thought was going to catch up to the black a few years ago. It never did. More tiki bars opened, more people ordered the black and uh, the black just kind of had legs of its own. The the gold is catching up, but I don't think it'll ever catch up to the black, which is fine with me. I don't care. Um, I've got plenty of both. They're the same rum. The only difference is the caramel. It, it is two different caramels, not just more or less of one caramel. Right. And I've heard you talk about how like minuscule the amount that goes into the black is, but it's so intense. It, it's, you know, you're able to color it really, you know, effectively with just a, a tiny amount of it. Yeah, it's one liter of caramel for 4,000 liters of bottled product. It doesn't take much. And the caramel I buy in 20-liter jugs, five-gallon jugs, and uh, I don't use it all up before it goes bad. It goes bad in a few years, like two and a half years, two years. Uh, It just gets hard. We've mentioned the Ministry of Rum uh, a few times now. Also, there's the Ministry of Rum Facebook group, which I'm a part of, and I know quite a few people uh, are a part of. I think it's been going more than 10 years now uh, on Facebook, and I think at last count was over 18,000 members. I know you pop in there on occasion, but it, it doesn't seem like you interact there as much recently, and I think you mentioned also you kind of have backed off of that. I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on how that group, the Facebook group, has grown over time and how often you check in on what's being posted over there or, or the conversations that happen. Uh, rarely do I even yeah, look is, at it. Is there a reason for that? Well, I think Mark Zuckerberg is <laughs> <laughs> Join okay. the club, Yeah. <laughs> That's if he's human. You know, why do I want to? <laughs> yeah, he's human and he's entitled to it. He can, he's rich. Yeah. You know, the golden rule. The guy with the gold makes the rules. He made his own <laughs> rules. I don't agree with him. Um, I don't think he is doing the world justice or service. I think he could do mm-hmm. a lot better. Uh, that grew out of when I started, first started uh, bringing in my own barrels. And you ask examples of things that took off faster than I thought they would. I started a page on Facebook to sell uh, Lemonheart 151. I went to my distributor in California who at that time, and California is still my best market, but at that time my distributor uh, was doing a good job. And I said, Lou, do you want Lemonheart 151? And he says, Ed, you know I love you. You're a great guy. And at that point, I knew where it was going. Yeah. (laughs) But he says, he puts his arm around me and he says, Ed, I just don't see a market for lemon rum. (laughs) And I said, Lou, you're right. I don't see a market for lemon rum either. So 
we all know the easiest, one of the easiest things to do is tell other people how to spend their money. <laughs> yeah. We all know how to manage other people's money better than we know how to manage mm-hmm. our own. So how do you convince a guy to lay out thousands of dollars when he doesn't have a lot of spare money? So I went on Facebook and I said, I am getting a limited amount. And I think it was like 450 cases. Uh, I said, I'm getting 450 cases of Lemon Heart 151. It will be available soon. And if you want it, here's a list of distributors. Call these people Mm. and order it. Two days later, he said, Ed, I don't know what's going on, but I got to have some of that lemon rum. <laughs> that lemon he rum. Sold he sold 150 cases. Wow. I said, in less oh. than a week. I said, Lou, let me tell you, there's one thing you need to know. That's There's just one, only one thing you need to know. It's not lemon rum. <laughs> it's lemon heart rum. It's a guy's name. And it's 151. He says, I don't care what it is. I got to have some. <laughs> Yeah, the power of social media. There was an example. I sold out that 450 cases so fast I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. And then they changed the the uh, label. And uh, fortunately, they didn't change the formula much, but uh, they came out with a new label, new brand owner. They had to have a new fancy label, and they were graphics mm-hmm. people. So they did. And then uh, I started doing it. And then, of course, I had to go to Martin Kate with my hat in my hand and say, Martin, let's sit down and taste this new bottle of Lemon Heart compared to the old label of Lemon Heart. What do you think? And uh, there's a YouTube video about that. We tasted it, tasted the two side by side, switched them around. After a few minutes, we couldn't tell the difference. And I said, great, mission accomplished. <laughs> and uh, I went to the airport and got on the plane and went back to Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time. so. You know, there was an example. There have been a few surprises. Well, well, how about the the Ministry of Rum website itself? Was that also a surprise in terms of that becoming such a, a huge resource for people? Yes. So I, when I started that back in 95, I was living on my boat in the Caribbean. I'd done a book and a website designer came to me at a book show. I was trying to sell mm-hmm. a book and uh, I didn't know that in the U.S. there were, back then, there were about three, this is before Amazon, there were about three book distributors. Now, if you think alcohol distribution's <laughs> bad, if you weren't with one of those three book distributors in the U.S., you didn't wow, have a yeah. chance. And I learned that at a big book convention in Chicago. But I did meet a guy that was doing websites, and he said, this is perfect. You got... Uh, great labels to go, you know, islands and everybody dreams of going to the islands drinking rum. Yeah. And he says, well, you know, what are you going to call your website? And I said, well, it's going to be Ministry of Rum. I dreamed up that name in the <laughs> islands, cockpit of a sailboat late one night trying to figure out how to promote my second or my book. That would have been fun to be a fruit fly but, in, in uh, that environment. <laughs> Listen to that. Yeah, you probably would have gotten drunk even before the distance on that one. It was one of those ideas that we came up with, and then the next day it still seemed like a pretty good idea. And so I went with it, and then it grew. Well, so a guy did the website, and he said he wanted to do labels. Well, then he says, oh, no, graphics, oh, boy, mm-hmm. that's cost a lot of money. I already had the images scanned, but, you know, you run into these deals where everything is not as yeah. it appears. So it took me about two years to wrangle the URL away from him. And then I started, I learned a little bit of HTML and a friend of mine in Chicago learned some HTML and thought took it on as a project. And then one day I was writing 
reading an article about rum, 10 best rums you'll never find. And I realized people want to read about rum. They want the romance of the islands. But what they really want, damn it, is where can I buy this good bottle of rum? Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at how can I write about these rums and then tell people where Mm. to buy them. And I ended up writing the software for that website myself back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, it served its purpose. Uh, I want to redo that website and rebuild it. Unfortunately, or one of the challenges is that was originally written in PHP 4. Now we're at PHP mm-hmm. 7. Right. So if I update it to the latest and greatest PHP, mm-hmm. it will break because everything isn't backward compatible. I've had people approach me and say, you know, let's do it in a WordPress website. Well, WordPress really isn't built for uh, heavy database Mm -hmm. projects where you've got 10 or 12 parameters for each product. Uh, And then you, so you'd start with WordPress and then you put in a bunch of plugins and then when they update WordPress, the plugins don't work. Exactly, been down that road. Yeah, I don't want to go down that yeah. road again. So I'm I'm looking at a way to redo it, and I would like to move or attract some of that Facebook Ministry of Rum page. And I know that it can be a much better resource for rum drinkers than than Facebook. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things in the works there. I, I just haven't had time to do it. I thought maybe I would have more time <laughs> during this COVID uh-huh. crisis, but... You find other ways to I fill really, it. Yeah, other things have been coming along, and uh, so I've been busy yeah. doing that. But everybody I've talked to that is regulars on that Ministry of Rum page, uh, the Facebook page, agrees with me that, yeah, there could be a better forum. You know, one of the things that strikes me is there's ads all the yeah. time for all kinds of crap that I don't make any money on. I don't get a penny from it. So... The only thing it does for me is when I came out with a new product like White Stash, I told people it was coming, it was available, and uh, I sold a few cases and got it out and got distribution and people are calling me. And Hmm. so, you know, it kind of serves its purpose. I get a lot of hate mail and I don't even look at all the people that want to contact me through that. I think there's 300 messages waiting for me right now on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. You know, where do you start with yeah. that? So. Well, as, as someone else who does not enjoy spending time on Facebook, um, I am glad to hear that you're, you're, you're considering, you know, adding on other mechanisms on, on the website to bring some of that conversation over there. Because I love participating in ROM conversations. I just don't always find that Facebook is the best forum mm-hmm. uh, for those to, to take place. No, it's not the worst. Um, the good news on Facebook is it's, it's see, there's a lot of eyes. Yeah. But... I don't really want quantity. I'm looking more for quality. And what I need to do, so one of the reasons the Ministry of Rum Facebook page, I want to say broke down, it it still operates, uh, but I took off the ability for people to add their own products, their Mm -hmm. own rums, and I need to redo that. But that involves a lot of security on the internet uh, so that somebody doesn't get in and whack the database or Mm -hmm. other problems. And I've had a number of spammers and different people selling Canadian hormone drugs on it and using my email to send out. So there's been all kinds of security problems. But uh, I want to get it to a point where people can legitimately post their new rum as a producer and where it's available. 
and uh, that takes you know more of my time to get that up and then i have to have somebody moderate it i would like to do that i don't know what the best forum software is for that right now right now it's on vbulletin uh vbulletin isn't that secure so it's an ongoing process um i'm talking to a couple of people like myself they haven't had a lot of time Uh, what i don't want to do is turn it into some purely hedonistic money grabbing thing uh people are telling me other marketers have come to me and go wow you got this great site you know we could sell all this kind of stuff on it i go no that's really not what i'm after uh but i would like to uh elevate the conversation and uh you know, give certain people space on there so they can stand on their soapbox and talk about what they're doing and that kind of thing. So, Ed, you've lived the dream with regard to having sailed around the Caribbean and many other places uh, while you're sipping on the world's best rums in the name of research, of course, and perhaps recreation a little. What I'd like to ask is what are the top three places you've been to? that you would consider to be a mecca for all rum enthusiasts like myself and Will and others to travel to at least once in their life? Well, one place that when I was sailing up and down the islands, the Americans wouldn't go to because it was French and things were much more expensive. Rum was more than it was in the other islands. So, for example, back in the 90s, uh, a bottle of Brugal from Dominican Republic was about $4. Cruzion was too. So you got to Martinique, rum was six, seven dollars a bottle. So people didn't like it. A lot of people on sailboats were looking for inexpensive. But uh, that's also has a little bit to do with the change in currencies. Uh, Now it's, well, I I don't see it as being that much more expensive. And I value the quality Mm -hmm. more than the uh, quantity of booze you get Mm -hmm. for two bucks. Cruzion has also gotten much more expensive in St. Thomas. So things have evened out a little bit. But I I think if you're a rum enthusiast, you really owe it to yourself to go to Martinique. Hmm. Uh, There are several, many distilleries, six or seven that are producing right now. The culture is fantastic. The roads are good. Uh, It's a fairly safe island. The the food's great. Uh, It's just a great place to go. Another island, that, and it happens to be French, is Marie Gallant. I've heard about and this, And yeah. it's the last place where you can see the uh, farmers hauling cane to the distilleries with ox hmm. carts. Wow. It's near Guadeloupe, is that right? Uh, it's right next to Guadeloupe, right? Now, Guadeloupe is another one that I would hmm. highly recommend. Uh, they've gotten very proud of their rums lately, and... Uh, I don't know exactly what's going on there. And it's a very different island than Martinique. But one of the reasons I mentioned Martinique first is it's much more accessible. It's much easier to get to. Uh, used to be you could fly direct. Now you've got to go through Miami, Haiti, and Guadalupe mm. to get to Martinique uh, on Air France. But occasionally there's other flights. And it's one of those destinations that has never really taken off from America, but somebody's always been trying mm. uh, for the last 10, 12 <laughs> years. Uh, I really love Guyana, but it's not as safe as the other islands. And there's only one distillery there and they don't really, they don't welcome tourists the mm. way other islands do. Now, maybe they're working on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's an it's an incredible place. 
Trinidad before they closed the distilleries was amazing. Now, it wasn't much for tourism, but it was an amazing place. They had uh, a couple of old, really old stills at the Carinae mm-hmm. Distillery. Uh, Grenada is a fantastic oh, wow. place. There's a couple of distilleries operating there now. I don't think I've uh, ever had a Grenada great. rum. No, Clark's, Clark's Court is one of the brands out of Grenada. Yeah. Hmm. So they did some funky stuff with their aged rum and uh, had some additives. They had some fast aging stuff that really didn't work. There was a guy going through the islands years ago that was selling some stuff. And I wanted to want to say it was Easy Age or Mellow Smoke, mm. something mm. like that. And uh, they claimed if you added so many drops of it per bottle, it would give you a three-year equivalent. <laughs> well, not quite. Yeah. Creative. Yeah. <laughs> not quite. But if you add six drops of it, then we must be a six-year, <laughs> twice as much or even three times as much. So they were adding stuff to it. And they, they didn't, I don't know, they, they didn't understand the bigger hmm. market. I feel bad. I would love to import Grenadian rum. But... I know that one of the challenges is if it doesn't have a wow factor, for mm-hmm. example. So years ago, I was in uh, Worthy Park on my second trip there, and I tasted some rums that were six, seven, well, four to 10 years yeah. old. And two or three people are literally hovering over me as I taste these things. And they said, what do you think? What do you think? I said, it's good, but I can't put 50 to $100,000 into this project and import a bunch of this because it really doesn't have a wow factor. And if I bring it to you, I said, wow, this is aged rum, aged light rum from Jamaica. You'd probably agree that it, yeah, it's good, but you're not going to buy the third or fourth bottle of it. And until you can get sales to that third or fourth bottle, you're going to end up with a warehouse full of rum at your great expense. And that is not a recipe to stay Mm -hmm. in business. So I want to have the rums that I like and that I can sell if I'm going to put that kind of money into it. Now, I'll buy barrels of other things uh, and totes of other things as appropriate as I need them. And I'll bottle them off on the side and do other things with them. But uh, it's very hard to meet the expectations of most producers. Uh, They think that their rum... Everybody thinks they make the best rum in the world. Yeah, sure. And everybody thinks that if I can only get this rum to America, mm-hmm. it's going to sell like hotcakes and I'm going to run out. And I've told, had people tell me, no, I, you, I won't export the rum because then I'll run out. You're going to sell too much and I'm going to run out. They don't want to break that commandment. <laughs> and they don't want to break it. And I said, okay. You know, I said, I'm not going to buy that much, uh, but I really like your rum and I'd like to have some of it. So my first rule is I want something that I like and that I can drink because I might end up having to drink 100 cases of it, <laughs> right? Well, it'd be horrible to have 100 cases of something that you didn't like. Yeah, right? yeah. That would suck. That suck worth more than having 100 cases of stuff you don't like. And I'm, I'm curious, as as uh, some of these distilleries, you know, you mentioned Worthy Park, as, as they start working on developing their own brands of rum, has, has that altered the your ability to to source from certain producers has it made it more challenging what 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 does that look like for you no it's it hasn't caused me any problems hmm. um i'm buying bulk rum i have a good relationship with them i tell them what i expect i'm going to need and they don't want to lose a good customer yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. 
I also, just by being a presence in the market, it helps their own brand gain a little bit of traction. Now, I'm not going to overstate, you know, how much I'm, I'm helping them, but sure. uh, they had another importer years ago and they didn't get much traction. And now they're working with Backbar and they're getting more traction, uh, but it's still an uphill slog for them. And it's expensive to have a representative fly around the country and work you know, with distributors and all that. I'm lucky that I can go into almost any bar in the country and go in and talk to the bartender without an invitation or without a reservation. Hmm. People know who I am. Do you just fling the doors open and say, Ed Hamilton is here? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. I usually just sit down and, and talk to them. Yeah. And uh, if the person I'm talking to doesn't know who I am, uh, somebody real quickly will come over, maybe a bar back or somebody else or another customer will come over and say, oh, aren't you Ed Hamilton? I go, yeah. And then they go, oh, you're Ed Hamilton. Yeah. yeah you're a tall <laughs> guy too, right? So you, you probably stick out. Yeah. I stick out. I'm a tall white guy. Uh, I'm 6'5". Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I stick out almost everywhere. But I've been traveling the country for, you know, 17 years doing this. So I'm known around the industry. And that takes a long time to build. And then you have to maintain your reputation of having good products and being honest with people. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, they say you can only sell your first impression one time. Well, you can only sell your credibility one time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you put something out that's not right or uh, you're not being honest about what you're doing, you know, for example, saying, oh, we don't add anything to this. You know, people know people and the, the the consumers are getting more savvy all the time. I have a hydrometer and I check other products and I look for sugar and then I look for additives and other things. And uh, I haven't started spending the money to analyze other products that I think are in violation of TTB regulations. And unfortunately, right now, the TTB lab is shut down. Because of COVID, oh, but interesting. Uh, if you're pretty egregious, the TTB is interested as much as their budget and time will allow. And there have been a few instances where uh, brands have changed things based on TTB letters. So, um, a, a little over five years ago or so, Imbibe magazine did an article called Ed Hamilton's Essential Rums, and they, they basically just asked you to recommend, you know, a bunch of, of, of rums. Uh, I'm wondering, can we run through your recommendations from five years ago and see if there are any updates that you would make now? Sure. Okay. Um, so, the first one I'm assuming probably won't change, which is Nissan Rums. Yeah, they're still pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, El Dorado five-year-old. So El Dorado five-year-old started getting sweet and it got lighter. The, the, the rum changed and uh, that's part of the success of my 86 proof. And it's, it's frustrating to me because I buy the rum from the El Dorado distillery. Yeah. But their people have, you know, their marketing goals and interests and uh, whatever you call it, directives and people, you know, the, the market's changed. Uh, years ago, when that El Dorado three-year-old first came out, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, okay, in the tear, teardrop-shaped bottle. Mm -hmm. That was everybody's favorite white rum. 
when that came out. Hmm. And now you don't see it anymore. It started getting sweeter. Yeah. So uh, the next one on the list is Venezuelan rums. And you mentioned specifically Santa Teresa, Añejo, Gran Reserva, and Diplomatico Gran Reserva, the orange label one, I believe. Yeah, the orange label is the one I like from Diplomatico. Uh, the Santa Teresa Grand Reserva, I still like highly. A uh, good friend of mine is the North American guy for Santa Teresa, and uh, distribution of Santa Teresa is now being done by Bacardi. Mm. And Bacardi's taken an interest in the brand. And uh, it, unfortunately, it's still kind of hard to get, uh, depending on where you are in the country. They've got their directives and their marketing. and. Uh, so you won't find it everywhere. The The next one is, you mentioned a few Puerto Rican rums, so the Don Q Cristal and then Bacardi 8 as great value. Yeah, I haven't seen Bacardi 8 in a while. Uh, the Don Q Cristal, it's still It's still light, everywhere. Yeah, it's still light uh, rum. Whenever I see Roberto Serias, who is the, I don't know if he's the president or director, he's the head honcho down there. Some, if I'm in a bar and somebody sees me and they see Robert, they, uh, Roberto, uh, they typically ask me, uh, Ed, what do you recommend for uh, a vodka drinker if they're going to try a new rum? And I fall for it or (laughs) I'll play along. And I say, Don Q Cristal, you can't buy a better, you can't buy a better vodka in a rum bottle. (laughs) (laughs) What is Roberto's response to that? He loves it. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't care. If, if you can convert somebody to drinking rum, he doesn't care how you do it. And he, he's right. You know, he says, yeah, it's a light rum and it's a light, clean, uh, bright rum. And when you mix it with tonic or whatever you're going to mix it with, you know, it's it's less expensive than vodka, any of the classy vodkas. And uh, most of the, you know, it doesn't have any additives. That's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many times in in uh, vodka, you'll, you'll see a review and years ago, there were a number of people that were getting uh, all kinds of bottles sent to them, and they were reviewing them for social media and that. And one of the things that stuck out was you would see these reviews, and it has such a smooth, silky mouthfeel. Well, dumbass, that's glycerin. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't add any glycerin to it. Yeah. And then last but not least on the list, which I'm assuming is unchanging, of course, were the ha- Hamilton rubs. You mentioned specifically Hamilton 151 and the cask strength St. Lucia's as a, a recommendation, which that's that's still a, re- a recommendation that I think rings true today. Yeah, the, uh, the St. Lucian are going to go in the archives soon. The 151, there still isn't a better 151 out there. Yeah. And actually, on on that note, I did want to mention, you know, I see Hamilton 151 and Lemonheart 151. I think it's a pair of rums that I see compared more than almost any other, you know, on various rum forums across the Internet. Um, And, you know, they're they're both sourced from the same distillery. They're designed for similar applications. But if you do compare them side by side, you notice clear differences. Are there any specific choices you think that you made that really set the Hamilton bottling apart from the Lemonheart 151? Well, I got a heavier rum and I, and it's aged a little longer and that was paramount to me. Yeah. When I first looked at samples, I tasted uh, half a dozen different samples and I was looking for something 
that would replace the old lemon heart, but it had to be as good or better, preferably yeah. better. And when I say better, smoother, as smoother with as much or more flavor, nothing offensive in the finish or the entry or the aroma. And it had to be at the price point that was comparable to the old lemon heart. I think the retail price at that time was $29.99. When they rebranded, they chose a lighter distillate and they were trying to squeeze more money out of it. And so they went a lighter distillate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not aged as long and it's a lighter rum. And uh, one of my favorite comments about that in a review is the best way to kill a zombie is with Lemon Heart 151. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, where, where did that come from? Do you remember? Came from a Tacoma bartender. Okay. Um, so I was importing Lemon Heart. Lemon Heart asked me for the names of all my distributors. And I wasn't going to not give it to them. You know, I knew what they were up to. But I said, okay, you know, here you go. They also did a national deal with... Uh, Southern Wine and Spirits. The only market that I've really been hurt in is Hawaii. I used to sell pallets uh, to Hawaii, to oh. to uh, Southern in Hawaii, and then they made a national deal. And so I lost that business. Um, my guess is at some point I'll get some of that back. But right now there's no business in Hawaii. If you fly to Hawaii, you've got to quarantine for 14 days. Yep. So there goes your vacation. Yep. Um, one of my old high school friends uh, lives in Hawaii. He's retired, uh, much smarter and richer than I am. And <laughs> he sold his ophthalmic surgery center in DeLand and moved to Maui. That sounds and, like a uh, great plan. Yeah. <laughs> Took him years to do it. But, Should have uh, thought of that one earlier. <laughs> yeah, like 50 years ago. <laughs> but he, uh, I was talking to him over the weekend. There was a little bit of a... Trump, well, it was a hurricane, but it went. Yeah, the, it, it, I saw it. I saw this morning, it, like, or maybe yesterday, it just narrowly avoided the islands. Mm-hmm. Right. But you guys, you, well, you know, Florida. Oh, yeah. We're looking at one right uh, now. So if it goes north of you, it's all good. If it goes south of you, it's going to suck. Well, it went north of him and he said it was a non event in Maui. He said we could use the rain. But he says, Said, I said, sorry, you missed your tea time. He's quite a golfer. And he says, well, it doesn't matter. Everything's shut down without the tourists. Um, mm. Everything, just about everything shut down. The restaurant, yeah. the bar shut down at the country club. Uh, most of the restaurants are geared for the tourist trade. Yeah. And he says, everything is basically shut down. So, you know, it's the tourists that are spending money and drinking lots of, of rum. Unfortunately, as he says, that Hamilton 151 is the best thing. They put in a lot of the rum drinks in Hawaii, but I haven't had time to spend time and energy out there. I've been busy, you know. Yeah, it take, takes a, a special trip to go all the way out there, I would assume. Well, it does, and uh, Southwest flies out there now. I got plenty of points. Yeah, they just uh, added that, I think, in the last yeah, year or so. Yeah, they recently added yeah. it, but... Uh, Right now, you fly out there, you got a 14-day quarantine, yeah. which I commend them for. I mean, they ought to. Yeah, uh, they're, They've got an island, and you know you don't need an outbreak of uh, COVID. Right. 
and uh, they quarantined the cruise ship passengers early on. Said no, you know, you can't get off the ship. You know, you can come over and stand in this little area in the sun, but you can't go into <laughs> town and all that. And they saved the islands. You know, that's uh, smart. Yeah. Well, they don't have hospital beds for twenty percent of yeah. the island, so it was a smart thing. You guys have both dealt with it. You've seen the lack of response or the wonderful response, how that's worked out. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, go go downtown in Nashville and those bars on Broadway that, that opened up so fast. And, uh, I mean, it's a constant battle right now between the, the, the mayor's office and, and, you know, everyone who's trying to, to sue for the right to reopen and that sort of thing. So, wild times. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And my business depends on bars being open, but I would rather have bars closed and suffer a little longer and then have customers when this is all over right in yeah. a shorter period of time i mean if we look at the way europe handled it right you know i remember seeing pictures of spain and italy and thinking oh shit mm-hmm. if that ever if it ever gets that bad in the u.s we're screwed yeah well guess what yeah look at look at <laughs> look at the current state of things <laughs> yeah. well ed we, we really appreciate you taking the time um this has been it's been a great conversation i really enjoyed it and be- before we end we always we have an optional segment at the end of all of our rumcast interviews um it's what we like to call a, a rapid fire series of questions where i put a minute on the clock and john has a list of questions that he has come up with in advance. I put all of the responsibility on John for the quality of the questions, whether they are good or bad. All should. the credit goes to him. So um, do I answer these that sucks or doesn't suck? <laughs> it's it, it's it's more it's not necessarily yes or no. It's more of a first thing that comes to mind type yeah. of question. Quick, but quick, as short I said, answers. it's optional. Yeah. So if you're up for it, great. If you're sure. not, we'll, we'll bid you farewell. All right. all right, you're up for it. All right, so I'm going to put a minute on the clock, and John, let me know when you're ready. Will, whenever you're ready, we'll start. All right, let's go. All right, neat or on the rocks? Neat. Column, pot, or blend? Oh, that's a tough one. I'd say blend. The Matahari, Tafia, or Triton? Oh, Triton. But okay. Matahari was my first boat, so I'll always You upgraded Matahari. along the way. <laughs> if you could only suggest one, would you tell someone to major in mechanical engineering or chemical engineering? Probably chemical. Favorite person to share a bottle of rum with? Boy, there's there's so many. Um, Jeff Barry's always a lot of fun. Lin Manuel Miranda contacts you about doing a sequel to his hit musical Hamilton, which will be about you and the creation of Ministry of Rum. What's the title of the first song or the name of the first act? Oh boy, uh, probably the Chairman. All right. <laughs> <laughs> name a rum producing country or distiller you wish you would have been able to bring in under your Hamilton line, but weren't able to do so. Um. Uh, Antigua, probably. At the risk of stretching the metaphor a bit too far, since you're the minister of rum, do you view yourself more as the John the Baptist of rum, the Billy Graham of rum, or the Martin Luther of rum? Oh, probably Martin Luther. I'm more honest. <laughs> that's perfect. And that's time. All right. Yeah, I can picture you nailing the the Ed's Ten Commandments uh, on on the church door, definitely of wherever the the Church of Rum yeah. is located. <laughs> Hang on a minute, but in German, so Ein Minute in Bitter. Uh, Ed, uh, thanks again so much for for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, it's it's you know certainly great to catch up with someone who's so plugged into the rum world and supplying so much of the rums that 
I know uh, the, uh, people go out of their way to seek out. So, yeah. so thank you for, for all you're doing and for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you. I wish these were easier to find, but uh, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> well, maybe. You yeah, can, well, uh, like I said, all, all you have to do is you have to find your local store that like knows Hamilton has the good stuff. And then in my experience, they tend to keep ordering it. So hopefully that continues. You know, that's the one thing I tell people all the time. The best thing you can do is go to a store and ask for it. And in Florida, tell them uh, progress. But if you ask for it and develop a relationship with your local store, almost anybody can get it all over the country. I'm in 40 states now. There aren't many places where you can't get it. Well, that is good to hear. Yeah. Everyone who's listening, go to your store. Even if they already have Hamilton, tell them to keep getting it. Um, and that will ensure that your supply stays intact. Um, Ed, thanks thanks so much again. Thank you, Ed. And uh, looking forward to seeing what comes from you next. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys in person and uh, drinking some rum. Okay, so I hope uh, everybody enjoyed that interview with Ed Hamilton. I know uh, definitely Will and I did. Um, One thing I did want to say, Will, was that Ed did contact us after the interview, and he let us know that, hey, there was one thing he had wished he had said during the rapid fire round. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so what it was was when we asked uh, anywhere he wanted to import uh, a rum from somewhere that he didn't get a chance to do on his Hamilton line, Mm -hmm. and he he told us, you know, he really should have said Barbados. Uh, And it was an interesting reason, he said, because he had discovered 800 barrels of seven-year-old rum way back in 1993. Wow. Um, But he didn't have a way to bottle it then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, that was an interesting uh, note I thought that he gave us afterwards. So we wanted to share that too. So, yeah. yeah. And speaking of emails coming in to our host at rumcast.com email address, uh, we would love to get some of those emails from you listening right now. So uh, any questions you have, any topics you'd love uh, to hear covered on a future episode, any guests you would love to hear from on a future episode, reach out, let us know. We always love hearing from listeners and also if you have thoughts on the podcast another way to communicate those is to leave a review on apple podcasts or whatever other platform you listen to your podcasts on those reviews are really helpful yeah five stars Um, (laughs) (laughs) those are really helpful not only from a feedback standpoint but just from helping other people discover the podcast so we always really appreciate it but on that note uh we will see you again next time (laughs) 